Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. This is Dumpty Dum, sponsored by managers. Hello, this is Dumpty Dum, a podcast about the archers and the goings-on in Ambridge. I'm Jacqueline Berto, who is really a secret roller-dancing queen. And I'm Stephen Bowden, blowing my silent whistle to confuse the sheep. And then there's all of you, our lovely Dumpty Dummers, cheering for Kira's ewe lamb. Yes! Well, as we say, Dumpty Dum is the people's podcast. And on this episode, we hear from 10 Colorinras, several of them twice, I think. We hear from... Jack, who doesn't particularly like Ardil at the moment. Lillian, who is really, really annoyed by Tuesday. Laura, who's thinking about the cost of living crisis. Dusty Substances. Hi, Dusty! who has a few predictions for us. Andrea, who is a big fan of Kirsty. Catherine, who has thoughts on Adil, Linda and her. David, who has an eye on the Ambridge housing fairy. Then we have Andrea again. We, we like to do things twice in Brittany, who wants to cheer for Henry. We have Richard, who's been looking into the economics of cheese and hotels. And finally, we have Witherspoon, who's living in suspense as are the rest of us. Plus, we have a WhatsApp message from Janet, The Week in Ambridge by Sui, a roundup of Dumpty Dum Facebook group by Rob, and three Twitter gongs, bronze, silver and gold from Purple Pumpkin. But before Stephen and I start chatting too much, let's remind ourselves what's happened this week in Ambridge with a roundup from our Sui. Hello, my lovelies. It's Sui, Queen Altar here. Going to be a short one today, as I've just done a six-ish hour drive. No, 
So I'm trying to make it into some bullet points. Let's look at the week then. Tracy isn't going back to Grey Gables. Neither is Lindy Bottom, but not before she put the wind up, Ardil and Oliver. Helen assumed wrongly that Ian, as the new head of food, would just wave her cheese through. Ben broke David's toy farm and unleashed a torrent of innuendo. Henry arranged to go to the county show and meet up with Rob, with George facilitating. George appeared to have a crisis of conscience. Henry gave Rob a key ring. Rob said that he was dying. Then he threw Henry under the bus. Helen stopped for Britain. Kirsty told everyone what's what. And now Henry will leave him with even more counselling than he already did. There you go. Till next week then. Tomorrow. Well, that is fantastic. Thank you, Sui. In fact, we'll have to thank Sui really, really bucket loads this week because she did that on the return from our holiday in time for our deadline of midnight on Friday and succinct it was and got in all the relevant points. So thank you, Sui. So what have you been up to this week, Stephen? I think you've been abroad. I have been abroad. I've been your side of the the channel, or the sleeve, as I think you call it. Um, I was Indeed. in Paris. I was in Paris for the middle of the week and... It was a work trip, but that didn't stop me going out and having a couple of meals, one of which was at a very nice restaurant called Le Camier, which specialises in souffles. So. Oh, that sounds wonderful. You have to send me a link to show me where that is for the next trip to Paris. I will. Some people in our party had two souffles for their dinner. I, I just had one. It was a dessert souffle. And a dessert souffle. Yeah. Oh, right. Well, I'm not very desserty, so for me, it's all about the savouries, and I love a savoury souffle. And what have you been up to? Well, I got back from Ireland, which is a fantastic trip, and now I'm preparing for my trip back to the UK, which starts on Tuesday, because as many people message me with condolences of the death of my mother, who I found out was very, very poorly when we were in Birmingham, and I've managed to spend quite a bit of time with her since then. So uh, I was very grateful for that, and I'm very, very thankful for the Dumpty Dum family for all the condolences I've received. So I'm now, I've gone from arriving back from holiday mode to going back away for another two and a half weeks. But when we record, I'll be recording from the UK side next in two weeks' time. Jolly good. Right. That's probably enough about us. Yeah. So shall we get on with the calls? Why not? Hello, Ambridge3962. And first up, we have a couple of calls from Jack. Good evening, Dumpty Dummers in Britain and around the world. Jack here, not with Dom today, walking through the inner orchard at work. M6 in the background, unfortunately. I am saying that I don't like Ardil. I don't believe his intentions are... Honourable's possibly too strong a word, but I think there are broken promises. I don't think... There is genuine desire to create any sort of loyalty with the village or deep meaning relationship with the village as Grey Gables used to have, particularly in his seeming disdain for wanting to um, employ ex-employees. I don't like the way that he treated Linda tonight. And I think Oliver also treated her poorly. But I think at least with Oliver, there is still some sort of slight remorse. I didn't really get that from Ardil. But then possibly I wasn't listening terribly well. Also have a prediction from my mother, which isn't very nice, that George will become a sexual predator and a rapist, possibly. She, When Rob came back, when Harrison told Helen at Bridge Farm, she said straight away, he's dying. 
So she does have an uncanny ability to predict and be right about these things. Very annoyingly, it has to be said. So, yes, there we are. One plot prediction and a dislike of a particular character. How unfortunate that is. Anyway, pip pip. Me again, a very quick one, this is Jack, now in the vegetable garden, thinking about, were we told that Lee was away in San Francisco? Did anybody realise that? No, don't think so. Enough said, really. I suppose it's a bit like a plant. You know, you put it in the ground one year, you could forget about it. If it comes up the next year, fine. If it doesn't, hey-ho, there's always more plants to buy. Thank you for that call, Jack. And on your first point about Ardil, I think there's a, you're right that Ardil doesn't seem to be treating Grey Gables as part of the Ambridge community the way that it has been up to now. I don't really remember it in the Reggie Trentham days in the early, in the 50s and early 1960s, but certainly when Jack Woolley bought it, while he saw it very much as this country house hotel and he had his set of rich and not always entirely nice people around like Mercedes Goodman and Sir Sidney Goodman and these rich friends of his, you always got the feeling that Jack really believed in Ambridge as, as a community that he'd adopted. And then he passed it on to Caroline, who ran it, and then with Oliver. And it still was part of the community. But since the fire and then the sale, Ardil has come in. Obviously, it's been closed. But it just doesn't feel like it's going to be the same place as it always was. So I, I do think that there has been a change. And I'm not sure that I would necessarily blame Ardil for all of that. But... I can see why he's not as warm a person as Oliver or Caroline or indeed Jack Woolley. What do you think, Shetwin? Firstly, I agree to a certain extent with Jack because the way that the we don't know who the owners are, there's no connection between Ardil is representing the owners, but who are the owners? Why is why don't we know that which sounds is so ridiculous compared to how it's been before with the owners being completely implicated. And now Ardil, he has an allotment, but he's living in a, a bed and breakfast. There is no logic in that whatsoever. So talking about allotments, I'm fascinated by Jack. Where does he work? Near the M6. I've tried, I've, I've Googled maps. I've tried to work it out. A garden at work with an orchard and a vegetable garden. If you wouldn't mind, Jack, could you, uh, even if you need to do it privately to me, could you put me out of my misery? Where do you work? It sounds fascinating. Then, Jack, also his mother's prediction about ah, yeah. George and George becoming possibly a rapist. We had a discussion last week when Mia suggested that Jack was going to become an incel. And while I'm not too keen on giving people that particular label because it's a, one that they tend to adopt for themselves, and I think then see it as, if not a badge of honour, at least as an excuse yeah. for being horrible people. I certainly think George is a horrible person. Whether it will go down the physical violence route or not, I'm not sure. I don't think he's shown any signs of actually being violent. He's obviously healthy and strong, as demonstrated by all that hay bale tossing, but he doesn't appear to be a physical bully so much as a mental... No, he's uh, definitely a manipulator. And he uses situations to his best advantage in a very nasty way. But this week, George, I wouldn't say that he got better, but I, I began to doubt my total despising of him. 
only because he actually showed at the last minute, the very last minute, concern for Henry. But I think that somebody else talks about that. Yes. Let's move on to our next call, and that is from Lillian. Hi, everybody. It's uh, Lillian here from um, Middlesbrough. Um, hi, Jacqueline, and hi, Stephen. I am calling in after Tuesday's episode, which really, really annoyed me on several levels. Firstly, Pitt, the way that she spoke about Ben, like, oh, I'm glad I brought him. Like, he was her puppy. It really, really annoyed me. And, oh, I know he wants to go home early, blah, blah, blah. So that really annoyed me. And then she rewarded him with a cup of tea and not even a biscuit to go with it. And then he ended up in David's farm. But anyway, the other thing that annoyed me was Lottie. What a child. The way she was behaving about that bloke in the pub. I was like, really? Really? And she's got a child of her own. She needs to grow up, seriously. So yeah, so that episode really annoyed me. I'm calling in about that largely. And then Helen really annoyed me. The way when she heard that Ian was going after the job. Oh, I'll bring around some cheese samples. Like, he wasn't going to consider anybody else's cheese but hers. And he was like, well, hang on a bit, Helen. She just, and that, like everybody else has said, she's just massively entitled. And just one last thing I wanted to say with Stephen, please, please, please do a two-minute history of dogs, including Marjorie Ann Trubuzzi's dogs. So I shall get out of here and speak to everyone soon. Bye for now. Ah, lovely. Thank you for that call, Lillian. Yes, annoying Pip. I think it's down on the record. I am annoyed by Pip in general, but her treatment and her the way she spoke about Ben was particularly annoying this week. So I'm with you there, Lillian. Now, Lottie. Lottie is definitely a character that's coming into her own, but why? Is she being a foil for the Pip Stella story? Is she going to be a bouncing board for Pip? It's, I've got a lot of questions there. And I agree with Lillian. Can you please, please do a history of all the dogs in Ambridge, Stephen? I can't possibly do a history of all the dogs in Ambridge. <laughs> there are just so many of them. Oh, you're but so yes, literal. It, it's, it's on my list. And the ideas I'd sketched out included Baz, who came up recently, certainly included Mrs. Antropus's dogs, Portia and Tara and the others, and of course, Captain, and how Captain and Mrs. Antropus's dogs tied in together. So all of that would be included. And Scruff. I certainly can't do absolutely every dog. No, of course you can't. <laughs> now, as far as Pip is concerned, I was less irritated by Pip on her night out with Lottie than I was with Pip on that ice skating trip and the way that she is treating Stella at the moment. Pip has the opportunity of a relationship with one of the, if not the, nicest people in Ambridge. There are, as I think you know, very few of these characters in the village that I actually like. Yeah. But Stella is one of them. And I think that the way that Pip is reacting, it is so immature. It is so unfair on Stella. Pip needs to sit down and think through who she is and what she's doing and to talk to Stella, clear the air and decide either that it was all a mistake and that she's as, as straight as an arrow and not interested in that sort of thing. Or the much better answer, she should recognise for herself that she really is strongly attracted to Stella and work through that like she would with any other relationship. Her track record of relationships, as we know, is poor. Usually she gets involved with totally useless people. Here's a chance for her actually to find out what it's like to be in a relationship with a really 
good person. And I think that really she should be seizing that with both hands rather than just being an absolutely obnoxious cow. Yeah, I agree with you entirely. This isn't going to be a very good podcast if we agree with each other. But I think being an obnoxious cow is exactly the description I'd give to Pip with regards to Stella. And I agree entirely with you. She has to really man up a bit. She has to mature up a bit and think about where she's going with her relationships because she's such a child. Lottie was described as a child by Lillian, but I think Pip is a child. She's immature. She's managed to go from living in the farmhouse, working on the farm with her parents, being mummied and daddied by her parents to a certain extent. I know she's put her foot down about a few things, but she needs to look at her life And does she actually realise that she has a child and she has a commitment to that child? The summer holidays are always long and this isn't the first year she's had Rosie with her. Yeah, I agree. I was very disappointed with her on that uh, ice, no, uh, roller skating rink trip. But I'm glad Ruth was there as a foil to help uh, Stella enjoy herself. Until Friday when Ruth seemed to announce out of nowhere that they were going to give up on the bed and breakfast. I thought maybe doing the bed and breakfast would give her some space to think. But on the other hand, Pippa's got Rosie to get dressed and ready, whatever she does during the day. That's going to clash with when she ought to be cooking breakfast for the B&B guests. And of course, Pip and Rosie live in Rickyard Cottage and the bed and breakfast guests are in the Brookfield farmhouse. And there's a bit of a distance between those two, which is going to complicate things. So I think the best way around that would be for Pip to temporarily move into the bungalow with whoever it is who's living in the bungalow. Oh, it's Stella. Oh, that would be handy, wouldn't it? Very good, Stephen. That is an excellent prediction. Excellent solution. It would be an excellent solution if it were to happen. And then I think Josh could move into Rickyard because that's what he's always wanted to do. He, Yeah, he even started painting it, didn't he? Let's move on to our next call, which is from Laura. Hello, Dumpty Dum. This is Laura from Desbyshire again, thinking what's up for in, in after listening to Sunday's episode. So a few days late, things may have changed by the time we get to the end of the week. But just being a little bit frustrated with the tech writers, to be honest, in this episode, specifically around kind of Tracy's reaction to, to Oliver's job offer. Oliver offering people jobs left, right and centre. I know we spoke about a lot last week on the podcast, but I don't know, just within the current kind of cost of living crisis, the, the challenges that many people across the country are facing when it comes to money, just Tracy's reaction to the offer of a new job, flippantly sort of saying, oh, well, I'm getting loads less money working at the ball. This was somebody that was struggling just weeks ago with heating costs, was having to turn to a food bank to support her family. I I just felt it didn't ring true to me that somebody going through those circumstances in very, very challenging times, you know, inflationary pressures, etc., would so flippantly turn down a job with significant extra income and uh, acknowledging that in the way that she did. I appreciate people want to take on jobs for lots of different reasons and have to balance lots of different responsibilities. But as I say, I just felt it didn't really ring true to me to Tracy's character and what's developed over the past few months and also fitting in with how things are feeling for people at the moment. Appreciate Archers is often uh, escape from reality, but yeah, I just did. I don't know, just touched a nerve for me. Yeah. And we even had it last week to a lesser extent, I feel, with Ian. Again, I know a topic that was dissected in great length on the podcast. Again, somebody within very challenging circumstances, seemingly turning down profit, possibly opening businesses with money that we don't know where's from. So yeah, just my reflections. The one good thing from the episode is I love the sound of a, a plow and panini. 
So that might be something I'm taking from Lind <laughs> as a trade recorder in this episode. Anyway, thanks for the podcast. Bye. Thank you very much, Laura. The first thing I will say is that I do not like the sound of a ploughman's panini at all. I think that it is an abomination. I think that a ploughman's lunch is a perfect combination of bread, cheese and pickled onion and messing around with it and particularly making it into a panini, which after all is just a somewhat naff toasty is not the right way to do it. Why not just call it a cheese and pickle toasty and then make it properly rather than doing it as a panini? But that's just me with my, my foodie biases and so forth. Let's get back to the main point of that call, which was about Tracy's behaviour in particular around the prospect of going back to work at Ray Gables. I can see that she might, on the one hand, feel somewhat resentful for the way that she left Grey Gables, particularly having been deprived, and not for wrong reasons, of a bonus after her behaviour with Jazza and the ridiculous bedroom scene. But it does seem to me that she has changed from being really, really poor with the visits to the food bank and worrying about where the food was going to come from and the initially zero budget wedding. Suddenly now, with Jazza having moved in, everything seems to be fine. They're not worrying about money at all. I'm sure that if Tracy was that hard up, she would spend some time at least, well, some time every day, worrying about her money situation and, and her financial precarity. And so just to turn down a job offer because she's got casual work at the Bull, which is not guaranteed, even though the way that the Bull works, I think they're not going to sack her. It's, it does seem to me a bit unreasonable. What do you think, Jacqueline? I think that she's definitely missed a trick there. Whether the question as to whether Oliver should have offered her the job is another thing. But she, I agree with you, you have to take these opportunities, especially if you've gone through this period only this year when she had almost nothing, no food, no money to repair the car. Jazza then went on sick leave because he had his leg broken or his ankle broken. And then they really were struggling and they've just got, they're living off basically Bert's pension. So I'm a bit surprised that she turned it down with alacrity, but I thought it linked in very well with the story of Linda and how she played them and how they played her to show. I think it showed that, something that we talked about earlier, the lack of empathy or commitment of the village to Grey Gables, as well as Ardeal not being particularly interested in building a relationship with the village. So there we go. Yes, I, I thought that the idea of offering Linda the job of events coordinator, even just to do their initial launch event, was a bit crazy. This mm. isn't the same as organising a village fete or a panto, where at the end of the day, people know what to expect and they know what they're doing. This is one of the, the prime ways in which Grey Gables puts itself back onto the stage as one of the best hotels in Borsetshire with a black tie reception. And what you want there is somebody who is plugged into a modernity. It's not going to be the Tommy Croker band that will play at that no. event, even if Tommy Croker Jr. is still alive. And I'm wondering how many generations that band is going to go on for. That's another callback to the Jack Woolley days at Grey yeah. Gables when Tommy Croker provided most of the music. It's not going to be something like that or the Holiton Silver Band. It's going to be a swish event that is supposed to be showing off a modern hotel a modern country house hotel. And Linda doesn't really do modern. No, and she doesn't do social media. She doesn't do publicity in the modern. Yes, a Borsestra Life, if that exists as a magazine, would be her way of promoting what had happened 
at Grey Gables new opening. But what nowadays they, is needed is uh, out there beforehand, lots of advertising, Twitter campaigns, uh, Instagram campaigns on different levels. And that isn't Linda. I thought it was a bit ridiculous to even consider it, to even, it felt like a filler story that to me. But hey ho, what do I know, Stephen? What do any of us know? <laughs> Next up, we have a call from a voice that has been silent for far too long, and so we're really pleased that Dusty Substances has called back again. Hello, it's Dusty Substances here, the wrong sort of listener. I have been a bit out of the loop for a little while, but the injury I have sustained to my intercostal muscles has meant I'm confined to barracks at the moment. Admittedly, a holiday flat barracks, which is a little bit annoying. But in the absence of going out on outings with my family, I've been catching up with both the archers and the podcast. And the thoughts that are coming to my brain at the moment have probably been said by other people already, but I can see Stella and Pete in a relationship taking over Brookfield. I'm getting a sense of a sort of connection between Linda and Fallon, and I think if the inevitable happens to Robert while Fallon is still all over the place about the lease for the tea room. I can see that Fallon and possibly Harrison could join forces with Linda and be the strength she needs to maybe carry on with some sort of B and B. It's a bit posher than that, isn't it? Whatever that's called, her house guests, and maybe relocate the tea rooms to somewhere a little bit uh, linked with that, I'm hoping that soon the Rob situation will be behind us because I'm finding that quite uncomfortable and I absolutely loathe George. I think that's all I've got time to squeeze in. Loving all the lovely hosts, hoping everyone is well and hopefully speak more regularly. Bye. Firstly, thank you so much for that call, Dusty. Denise, it's lovely to hear from you. You had sadly missed in our caller in us, so please come back to us as often as you want. Secondly, Commiserations on the intercostal injury. Uh, I hope that clears up soon. Stella and Piff are taking over Brookfield. That is a lovely idea. I mean, Stephen and I have both made it quite clear that we agree. We think that Stella would be a very lovely partner to have and would, if Pip manages to get over herself, we think that, I think she will suit. Stella and Pip would go, go well together, both very farming orientated. They would run a business well and work together well. So that's one of the things. I love your prediction for Linda and Fallon with Harrison involved, maybe. But Linda and Fallon, I do see them as getting on together because it's a woman, they're both women who like to be out there communicating with people. So good prediction. What do you think, Stephen? I'm going to be very practical about the Linda Fallon tea shop in connection with Ambridge Hall arrangement which is to say I'm not sure that there's anywhere near Ambridge Hall that would be able to accommodate a tea room. The nearest places to Ambridge Hall are probably on the other side of the river, there's Home Farm, connected by Narrow Bridge. But on the way towards the village, you get to the stables first, or you get to Hollow Tree. And Hollow Tree, of course, is where the charging station would be. So I think that there isn't really scope for putting a tea room anywhere near there and I think that the charging station is where Fallon is bound. I think that she's going to set up a rival establishment to the Bridge Farm tea rooms. I think that Bridge Farm will try and find a way of keeping to run that tea room and will fail because they will be outcompeted 
by Fallon, who will make an offer that is better for the village because it's nearer to the green than Bridge Farm is, obviously better for whatever trade comes to the EV charging station to charge their cars. And I think that just makes a lot of sense. But I, th I think that a partnership of some sort between Linda and Fallon makes an awful lot of sense. I'm going, going to da dash. I'm going to dash those very practical points and say that I believe that Ambridge Hall must have an old stable block, which is just a stone's throw from Hollowtree from the charging station. So a nice little stroll across the fields to a stable block, which has been converted into a beautiful tea rooms with lots of plug-in points for charging your phone, etc. Good Wi-Fi. I think they could go for it at Ambridge Hall with Linda lording it over and Fallon running a tea room. So that's my flight of fantasy against your practical suggestions. <laughs> we shall have to see. I'm not sure Ambridge Hall does have any outbuildings. It's got the shepherd's hut in the garden, yeah. but I think that if there were outbuildings, Linda would have converted them into more bed and breakfast accommodation. But we shall Man. see. Exactly. That's the joy of all of this. And now I think we're going to move to Brittany. Woo! Hi, lovely Dumpty Dummers all over the world and our equally lovely presenters. It's Andrea from Beautiful Brittany calling in after Monday's episode. I want to say just how bloody lovely Kirsty is. Isn't she just the best friend anyone could ever have? I mean, I, oh, I wish I had her as my friend. Anyone know how I can get in touch with her? She just is always there for Helen and she's always supportive. And I don't know, does Helen deserve her? Probably not. I don't think so. Kirsty needs to be my friend instead, but uh, she's with Helen, so I just suppose that shows just what a lovely person she is and how wonderful she is. That's all. Speak to you soon. Try a bit. Thank you, Andrea, and we'll hear a bit more from you later on. On Kirsty, yes, she's another one on my list of people I actually quite like. I've always liked her since she turned up in the village the first time as an accomplice with Tom trashing a field of genetically modified oilseed rape that Brian had planted as an experiment. Now, Kirsty's biggest problem has been her taste in men, most particularly Philip, but also Tom, and that rather tragic wedding that didn't happen and the loss of Wren, her child. By and large, I think Kirsty is great. I think mm. that she wastes herself on trying to cheer Helen up. I think that she should give Helen up as a bad job. But she's doing a fantastic job with the real worlding. So, like Andrea, I'm a big fan of Kirsty. Well, ditto. Can't say anything more to what you two have said. There you go. So, are those our first five calls? Yeah, I think they are. There are more absolutely brilliant ones coming up shortly, so you have to hold on for those. Now, if you'd like to contribute to this madness known as Dumpty Dum, you'd be so very welcome. Then there are three ways in which you can get involved. The first option is to record a message or a plot prediction by going to speakpipe.com slash dumpty dum and don't forget that's a t in the middle the next option is to send us a voice note or message via whatsapp on 07810 and of course if you're outside the united kingdom start with a plus four four and remove that first zero please keep your call to a maximum of two minutes or finally you can email us we have a new email you can contact us on if you would rather write to us with your views. A maximum of 250 words, please. And the email address is dumptydum at mail.com. And do bear in mind that we ask that you are at least 18 if you want to take part and contribute. 
Now, don't worry about taking notes and writing all that down as we've provided links to those three ways of contributing. You'll find those links in the show notes for this episode. They are there now and waiting for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So let's get back to our call, Stephen. Okay, and next up is Catherine. Hi, everyone. It's Catherine phoning in on Thursday. So if I miss a great hoo-ha at the county show tomorrow, then sorry. Right, firstly, Ardil, Adil, Ardil, Adil. Can they please decide how they're pronouncing his name? It's not even between different characters and their different ways they stress the syllables. No, something's changed about the way they pronounce his name. Secondly, they mentioned football. Hooray! The the football match on Sunday, or was it the other day anyway, they mentioned football, real life event. Unusual, but still nobody ever plays sport or five aside on a Wednesday night or anything like that. I've gone on about that before. But I really did notice about Linda and when she rebuffed the offer to go back to do the launch event for Grey Gables. Firstly, who would have someone in their 70s to go and do a high profile launch event? What does she really know about corporate hospitality? Can't speak. About Instagram, about influences, about that. I mean, she's just a posh old woman in a village, isn't she? Sorry, it's a bit ages. She's a posh woman in a village. I'm sure she's out of touch. Also, when they offered it, I had a thought, was there never a health and safety executive investigation, a police investigation? a payout from Grey Gables insurers. I know it was criminal and it was all a bit dodgy, but I can't believe that someone can have such a bad injury and no one is held responsible for it or, or Linda didn't get any insurance payout at all. Also, still, Linda's husband hasn't been mentioned. They must resolve that soon. It's just bizarre. And the entertainment of What's-Her-Face and Rosie. She is absolutely stunned, hasn't she, that she's got a daughter and she has to entertain her. Toby's supposed to have one day off in the holidays, take her to a water park and then, I know, camping or something. But she seems totally surprised to have a child and I'm sure everyone else will go on about her. Roller skating. Who's doing roller skating? Very odd. Have a great week, everyone. I think Catherine has covered all those points that we've already almost talked about, apart from the Adil Adil. Now, name the problem. Uh, I have a, na- a problem with names anyway. Catherine has a definite problem at remembering what's her face and who her and But that's fine. But pronouncing things, I've already been slated on the Dumpty Dum sites and Twitter by the fact that I can never remember it. Our deal, uh, Rory, Rory, and how you spell it and how you write it. Yeah, I'm a confused person. I would say Ardil now, this week. But would I have said Ardil originally? I don't know. 
the rest of her points are football. Blah. I think I'm a bit blur about football. I think you are as well, aren't you, Stephen? I'm not a huge fan. I thought they've got the balance about right in terms of mentioning it from time to time and talking about the Lionesses. It's a, a big event for those who do like football, and it's really good that women's sport, both the football yeah. and the cricket, is being given as much attention almost as the men's sport would have been, and they're certainly on, on the football side doing a lot better. And they've mentioned it a few times, and I think that's probably... They knew that the World Cup final was going to be this coming weekend. I think it was done in a way that they didn't need to do topical inserts because they were no. vague enough about that, except for talking about the chance to see the England team in the final. On the pronunciation of Ardeal, he has always called himself Ardeal, and the spelling has always been A-D-I-L. So mm. I think that if you see it written down, you might think that it was Adil, but he's always said Ardeal. And then a lot of people I know on the Facebook group and elsewhere have been sticking an R in to match the yeah. spelling, which, because I'm a bit retentive about these things, slightly bugs me. <laughs> and on the Academic Archer site, I once published, put up a post which basically had all the correct spellings of names so that people <laughs> know that Linda is spelt with a Y and Martin Gibson is spelt with a Y. Y. Brian yeah. is not, because some people want to stick a Y into Brian. Oh. And there are some bizarre spellings of Chelsea that pop up every so often, C-H-E-L-S-E-Y. And because these just slightly irritate me, and I know it's my fault for being irritated, I put up this list of, here are the correct ways of spelling it, <laughs> not these ways. And uh, some people appreciated that because I th I'm not the only one who gets slightly bothered by this. But other people, I think, thought that I was uh, just being completely up myself. But if I remember correctly, Chelsea is a name that has many, many permutations these days. And in fact, when I was last in Immingham and reading the Grimsby Evening Telegraph, I was reading the births, marriages and deaths column, as you do at my age. And I noticed that Chelsea's appeared several days running, all were spelt differently. So Chelsea, I would spell like Chelsea, the uh, area of London. But other people spell it otherwise, so I think it's one of those mixed bunches. Spelling, spelling, I suppose. You can be retentive as you are, but otherwise you can be fluid and just say, well, they're imaginary characters and let's let them go with it. Right? That's true. I guess it's because I've got a name that comes in two varieties yeah. and I feel, feel quite strongly that my name is spelt with a PH and not with a V. And that means it makes me feel sensitive about spelling other people's names correctly because I would like to treat them that way. Now, treat me. now, that I understand because when Charlie's Angels hit the, our screens in the 70s and 80s, Jacqueline Smith was one of the angels and her Jacqueline was spelt J-A-C-L-Y-N. And that irritated yeah, irritate the hell out of me because I'm very definitely Jacqueline. <laughs> Even when I lived in Immingham, I was Jacqueline and never a Jacqueline. Although Immingham people tend to say Jacqueline. Well, they will. We are. Now we'll have our next call, and this is from David. What's with up, Alb? VC Maeto, it's David from Carmarthenshire. Just calling in to remark on the fact that the Ambridge Housing Ferry is working overtime again this week. We now have the prospect of 
Hannah moving into Brookfield with the Archers. This seems really hard to believe on so many levels. Firstly, she'd been actually moving in with the family, as I understand, as the Airbnb room is simply a room in the house with shared bathroom facilities. Why the heck would the Archers want this? And what, certainly why would Hannah want this as an independent woman? I can't imagine she'd want to move in with the Archers. I know the rural housing situation is dire at the moment, but I really can't imagine that there can't be a new block of flats magicked up on Beechwood or something like that. Anyway, the important thing is Hannah must stay in Ambridge because I have a feeling that she's going to be George's nemesis. and I really want to see that unfolding. But uh, Hannah moving into Brookfield, unlikely to say the least. Anyway, that's it for now. Have a good week all. Hoi Labatro. Thank you, David. I agree that it would be great if Hannah could stay in Ambridge. She needs to deal with the way that George has treated her and effectively made his father evict her. I think as a short-term measure, Brookfield is probably the best bet There isn't really anywhere else. Although I kept thinking that Rex Fairbrother might move into the treehouse in Lower Loxley, which is in the woods where he keeps his pigs. And maybe Hannah should move into the treehouse in Lower Loxley, even though it's almost certainly falling down and not fit to live in. But at least it's somewhere with a roof. I would agree that Field isn't the the most obvious place, but but it's available, or at least it was available until Ruth had her funny turn on Friday about the the future of the B&B. And so while Hannah was looking around for somewhere more permanent, why not? Yeah, Hannah should stay. She needs to stay. She's another comer, another character who has had various interactions with people since she's arrived because she had the no-strings relationship with Tom before he met Natasha and she's shared with Johnny. So she's been integrated into the village, but also what I'm waiting for is to find out what Neil's reaction is going to be when he understands that she's going to be made homeless and why. Yes, Neil could well have a proper conversation with Will and say that this is quite ridiculous. But that's another of these situations where the economics make absolutely no sense. And I think we discussed this earlier. How can Will possibly afford to lose the rent from number one, the green, in exchange for presumably paying a little less towards the running costs of Grange Farm? And the reason that he's doing that is because he's worried about George's development. But that isn't the solution to the problem. No, and there's poor old Papi that comes into it as well. I worry about her living with George because he won't accept having a 10, 11-year-old sister around. So... It's going to be quite interesting. Neil's reaction to Hannah losing her place, her home, is going to be quite interesting. And I hope that is followed through by the scriptwriters and not one of those passing things that we that we just lose. I think it will be followed through. It's too fundamental to arrange relationships in the village for it just to be ignored. And I do think that the resolution of things between George and Hannah has got to be more than just Hannah disappearing off into the sunset. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much, David, for that. Uh, We agree with you. And then we go back to Andrea. Hi, everyone. Andrea from beautiful central Brittany again. Just phoning in after Thursday night's episode to say, oh, bloody love Henry. What a lovely young boy he is. Bloody stood up to Rob in the end. That was brilliant. And also George Grundy, not a complete and total scrooge. Words I never thought I would say. But I love the way the script is just throwing a little bit every now and again that makes you think, hmm, maybe he's not all bad. I really, although I hate him, I really love to hate his character and I love it when they bring out little bits of 
decent humanness in him. That's all for now. Speak soon. Try a bit. Yeah, I love that whole writing of Henry this week and how he was led by the nose, encouraged by George, and then actually saw a bit of Rob for what he was. Just like Andrea, I love to hate George. George is a, a total scrote as far as I'm concerned as well, and he couldn't, he can't redeem himself. But this week, there was just that little inkling that there is a stop button somewhere in there. That could be a faux ami, as we say in French. I'm not completely convinced by this. So we've seen George being less than utterly obnoxious in two circumstances. One is with Henry, as we've been discussing. And I think that George sees Henry as somebody who will be one of his followers and is therefore being nice to him so that he can get control over Henry. And in that respect, he might be a marginally less bad controller than Rob Titchener, but it's still not the ideal person that you want to have as your thought leader. And the other person that he was reasonably decent to was Brad, because he wanted Brad to get on well with Mia. And indeed, he was less horrible than he has been in the past to Mia. And again, I think he sees Brad as a possible disciple, though Brad is, I think, putting up more resistance to him than Henry was. So I think that we need to watch out for those circumstances where George is thinking of himself as a leader rather than thinking of himself as just an individual and that he has ambitions towards that. Yeah, that's interesting because, of course, he has a very relaxed but a very positive and respectful relationship with someone like Oliver who can only offer him something. He's doing it, and we see that. We see through that, don't we, that he's he's good with Oliver because Oliver opens doors for him, money-wise and otherwise. And not just Oliver, Martin Gibson. He uh, seems yeah. to have convinced Martin that he is worth something, Yeah. even though Martin's main reason for favouring him is because he's cheap from an yeah. employment perspective. So I, th I think there's a, a degree of complexity in there that I don't think lets George off the hook, a scrote, as you put it. <laughs> Indeed. Now, let's move on to a call from Richard, who once again is settled down in Lisbon and not calling from an airport. Richard calling in from Lisbon. Quick comment on the governance of Grey Gables. We heard that Oliver was reduced to a 40% shareholding by the new investment, and that Ardor commented that he was going to make a great deal of money whatever that meant to Ardell. Ardell is clearly the new shareholder's representative in a way that leaves Oliver with no control. So I guess Oliver's just helping at a shareholder meeting. The new shareholders will be able to outvote Oliver, but who is legally managing director? We don't know. Probably Ardell, but no light on that one. Clearly Oliver wouldn't have hiring and firing responsibilities without consultation, given that wages are by far the biggest expense in most businesses these days. It's going to be interesting the extent to which Ian is putting everything out to tender and taking bids. Talking of putting things out to tender, according to Bard on Google, the new AI thing, if Grey Gables has a hundred rooms, they'd be spending about $273 a month. If it was 50 rooms, it'd be $130 a month going on cheddar powders and mozzarella, brie and goat. That's not going to either make or break Helen's business. Changing the subject, I'm calling on Friday evening. 
slight sense of irony that the one time that the appalling George tried to do something remotely for his fellow human being, in this case, fellow child, he obviously not exactly failed, but that side of his behavior will be totally brushed over as it comes out that he was the link person. And I'm afraid that George will learn the wrong lesson that it doesn't pay to be good. Have a great weekend. Bye. Thank you very much for that call, Richard. That's a very useful way of using AI to answer questions and coming up with the idea of how much cheese a hotel gets through is something that I hadn't thought of asking for Mm -hmm. advice on. I agree that the the sums on that, and I suspect given that the amounts are in dollars, this is a typical American hotel, is going to be not too far off. I suspect that British people eat more good cheese than Americans, and Americans eat more dodgy provolone and processed cheese and so forth. But even so, it, it would make sense that a hotel the size of Grey Gables is not going to make a huge difference to the production of individual cheeses by somewhere, even somewhere as small as Bridge Farm. The sale to Underwoods, for instance, much more than that, plus any cheese subscriptions that they have alongside the veg boxes. Mm, indeed. You, I don't think I need to th- we need to think about American cheese. I'm not going any further. No, I, I apologise. You, you being in France, uh, the idea of American <laughs> cheese is We have a cheese anathema. for every day of the year. We have a cheese for every day of the year. A good cheese. <laughs> I'm not sure. Is Brittany big on cheese? Funnily enough, we have some very lovely, very brilliant local producers. And as it happens, a friend of mine who is a local cider producer asked me last year, could he borrow a little marquee thing that I have that I bought that we we attained for our marriage, our wedding a few years ago? And so he's always borrowed it. And could he borrow it for a friend? And she turns out to be an artisanal cheese producer. So when she returned it, she turned up with this amazing basket full of all the local cheeses that all, for not only they produce, but about six other producers in the area produce. We gorged on cheese for days. Luckily, we didn't have cholesterol tests coming up. But yeah, it's becoming a big thing, a bit like in the UK with the change in artisanal cider production, artisanal gins. Cheese in Brittany is becoming a thing. So yeah, I'm and I am a big cheese fan. Me, yes, and it means that you're not putting up with just the big thing from the place next door, which is no. Camembert coming in from. Normandy. Camembert is not my favourite cheese, actually. No, not mine either. I have had some raw camembert a few times in a nice situation with a nice glass of wine, but it's not my favourite either. There's so much more texture and flavour out there than camembert. Sorry. It's time for our final call, and it starts like this. Hey, baby, I hear the blues are calling. Toss salads and scrambled eggs. Mercy. Greetings, Jacqueline, Stephen, and all Dumpty Dummers around the world. It's Witherspoon and Angus Haggis here. A university friend of mine named David Groth recently published his third book of poetry entitled Live in Suspense. A reviewer wrote, to live in suspense is to live in an inherently disempowered position. Typically, if you're in suspense, you're waiting for something to happen that you'll have little, if any, control over. And boy, that's how I felt on Thursday and Friday. I'm sure almost everyone felt the same way. I wish I could have reached into my phone and pulled Henry out from the clutches of Rob. He was so scary, a throwback to the Rob of the days of yore. 
It reminded me of how he used to charm Helen and the family, covering up his selfish, evil intentions. He was so clearly using Henry to get to Jack. As Kirsty reminded Helen on Friday, Henry is only 12, and of course he would be fooled by Rob. But then he had a glimmer of understanding that something was off, and though he didn't quite understand the full situation, he knew he had to protect his younger brother from Rob. I know Helen haters, which constitute 98% of our community, are having a field day after Friday. But getting back to the issue of living in suspense, that's how Helen has been living. She's been in a disempowered position, waiting for the manipulations of Rob, which she has no control over. On Friday, she was very scared. But of course, no excuses. She was 100% wrong in what she said to Henry, and worse, it was damaging to him. I hope she quickly comes to understand how hurtful she was and has a come-to-Jesus moment about her recent behavior. In the absence of Lee, Kirsty will come to the rescue. Helen gets a therapist, Henry gets a therapist, Jack gets a therapist, and Rob gets an undertaker. I know I'm not supposed to think these things, but I hope his death is slow and painful. Talk to you soon. As always, a brilliant call, Witherspoon. Thank you for that. It's a good one to end on because... Witherspoon and I have not agreed ever about Helen, but in fact, over the last two weeks, whilst I've not been doing Dum Dum, three weeks, I've actually began to feel sorry for her because, yes, living in suspense, she is living in suspense. She's been disempowered and that is not her thing. She needs to be in control. We know that from her eating disorder. It's the one thing she can control. All her history where personally I think she's acted very badly and the culmination on Friday was, I was stunned. She acted so badly as a mother, but you have to think how scared and how disempowered she feels. I think it was a terrible culmination to the week as far as Helen was concerned. But this script writing of this story, I know you weren't very positive about Rob coming back and how it, but it will, this will end. And as Witherspoon says, it will end with Rob in his coffin. And we want that. And some of us want it to be slow. Some of us want it just to happen quickly. But it will end. And so we'll be free of Rob in the end, as will Helen. But it's how she's going to build her life forward, her relationships with her children, her relationships with her family, her relationship with Lee. Is that in doubt? Who knows? Brilliant call, Liv Witherspoon. Yes, I, th- I think that Helen's behaviour with Henry was absolutely appalling. And I know I've been in discussions on Twitter and elsewhere around whether it's entirely Helen's fault or whether Rob is to blame. And I tend to point the finger more towards Helen, but not just towards Helen. I think also the rest of her family, because this is all symptomatic of her failure to do anything sensible in the immediate aftermath of yeah. The stabbing of Rob and his attempted abduction, she didn't address that. Witherspoon's proposal for that is therapy, and given that Witherspoon is a therapist, (laughs) there's a slightly (laughs) self-interested view there. But whatever it is, I think that she has failed and that the family have failed to address that. They've decided not to tell Henry anything about it, kept him in the dark, so it's not surprising he's ended up doing something rather foolish. It's not his fault. It certainly isn't entirely Rob's fault. It is Helen's fault and it's Pat and Tony's fault. And they're just, they have totally failed to address what happened. But this is why 
you mentioned that I wasn't too keen on Rob coming back. My point is Rob is in Helen's head, and that was the story until he reappeared in person. And that was all about that failure to do things. Mm. So I find that quite interesting. It's been overhyped, overdone with Rob's return. And I, I quite liked it as a, a slow running, ongoing thing. What damage was Helen's approach to all this doing to Henry and in due course to Jack? And that's all rather been compressed into this rather melodramatic storyline and I, I don't like melodrama. No, I know you don't. And in fact, I'm with you as far as he's been portrayed as an absolute angry, angry man. And I know that the actual form of the brain cancer that he has can produce, ver it's either people become very acquiescent or they become very angry and he's showing the angry side. So Helen realised he was in the swimming pool car park because she, we heard him shouting at somebody and that is the melodrama that I agree with you entirely. We do not need people shouting in the street. It's, for me, that's the most cringeworthy thing that you'd ever imagine. And to hear Rob being angry out loud and turning, turning on a sixpence against Henry and with George and everything, oh, awful. I, I, don't, I can't cope with that kind of anger. So I agree with you there. But as you say, it'll soon be over. Yeah. Hooray. So I think we end on that call. Thank you, everyone, for calling in. And uh, we do love them. And if you have never called in, try and build up uh, a bit of uh, courage and call in to speak to Philippa and Katie next week or Stephen and I in two weeks. We'd love to hear from your calls. Now, did we receive any emails or WhatsApp messages this week, Stephen? Yes, we received two. The first is a WhatsApp message from Janet in Pinner, and it goes like this. Can anyone please tell me why Henry has gone from a toddler to a precocious prepubescent prig in such a short space of time? And can Helen get any more wound up? She is so tightly coiled, it will take more than a tub of Vaseline to sort that <laughs> out. And Lee is in Florida. Never mind. Janet from Pinner. Well, Lee's in, he's in California, but it's still across the pond, isn't it? Yeah, she's so, so wound up, as we've just said, Helen. There's no escape for Helen. As far as the character of Henry Janet, it's difficult for the archers, writers and script editors to, in real time, progress a child from being an infant to a teenager. And we've actually met, in fact, this would be an interesting fact for you to fact find if you don't know it in your head, Stephen, because you know everything, really. Do, is Henry one of the youngest at age 12, the youngest speaking characters we've had for a while. Because we have, often they wait until they're at least 15 or 16, don't they? I think so. It's been a while since we had somebody this young starting to talk. I think Will was quite young when he first appeared and yeah. was played by the same, has been played by the same actor throughout. This is Henry starting to talk properly because yeah. we previously had him doing the occasional word here and there. I think that was a different actor. And when they're very young, they record them separately and drop them yeah. into the sound. Disjointed, yeah. And it never quite works, whereas now we've got him properly as part of the, the storyline and, and properly engaging with people in, in a way that would have to be done live. I think precocious, prepubescent prig, apart from being quite difficult to say when you're doing a podcast, <laughs> is a little bit harsh. I think he does have this slightly posh schoolboy voice which can give that impression. 
I think most of what he's saying is quite sensible for a 12-year-old. Yeah, yeah, I think so as well. I find that a, a too derogatory description of Henry. But the actor, I cannot remember for the life of me his name, but what a good little actor, young actor. Absolutely brilliant. So thank you for that message, Janet. And we have a second email. So we've had a a message from Jen who tried to call her in, but it was too late because we were actually recording. And so she sent in a a message about the gist of her call because I think it's very relevant. So she says, sorry, guys, late last minute call after an argument on Twitter. Feel free to discard. I just want to say after last night, it's pretty clear what line they're taking with Rob. He's 100% evil, 100% monster deserves the cruelest tumour, cruelest punishment in not seeing Jack, should really have been either terminated or put in jail forever. As he's written fair enough, I just find that disappointingly unsubtle. There is a failure to see Rob as a human, and Lonnie would know better, but I've met some people through prison work, they often have farms, who had done both terrible but also good things, I'd have liked to see a different ending where Rob had made change. Of course, he was not given free access to Jack, nor access to Henry, but was granted one or two supervised visits and allowed to express genuine remorse. But I'm a sucker for a fairy tale ending. Well, the reason I've decided to include that last minute is because there is there is there are many people in our community who feel that yes, even even Witherspoon said in his call, he wishes him a long and miserable and painful end. And Jen, like quite a few other people, don't wish that to happen because it seems, as you've said, melodramatic. So I understand her frustration with it. I didn't. I don't think. I think it will go very quickly now. He's getting to. A, I hope it goes very quickly. But they could have done it much more subtly, and which is what your argument's been all along, isn't it, Stephen? Yes. So I agree with Jen that it's unrealistic to have Rob as such a one-dimensional evil figure, unlike the Rob that exists in Helen's head. And that's why I wanted to keep it that way because I think the Rob in Helen's head can be as one-dimensional as you like because it's Helen's creation of the person that she is afraid to tell her children about, whereas the real Rob is inevitably going to be more complicated than that. So yes, I absolutely agree with that. In terms of what a real Rob should get, I agree that he needs to be treated more fairly. I don't think that extends to supervised visits with his children. No. He has no rights in this matter. The legal position, the courts would say that they are looking at the interests of the child. And the fact that Rob is dying of a brain tumour does not change anything. In fact, if they feel that the children, Jack in particular, should have a relationship with his father, then yes, they can accelerate the process perhaps because he's dying. The fact that he's dying shouldn't change the the basic question of, is it in Jack's best interests to meet Mm -hmm. him? And given the way that Rob is admittedly, as we've said, one-dimensionally portrayed. There is no case, I think, for it being in Jack's interests to meet him. And again, even if all he gets in some point down the line is a cartoon version of the way that Rob was, as explained by Helen, that's fine from Jack's point of view. But yes, I agree with Jen that the portrayal of Rob is not particularly 
certainly subtle. It's not a good thing. But my solution is different. My solution was we should never have portrayed him after he had gone. Well, good. Thanks for that, Jen. Uh, last minute or not, it was very relevant. So let's move on to Facebook and welcome all our new subscribers. So that's a welcome to Susie, Kez, Tracy, Andy, Joyce and Glennis. So what has our Facebook been talking about this week? Let's find out as we sit back for the roundup with our Rob. Hello there everyone, it's the other much nicer Rob with the social media roundup. There were all manner of catering issues this week. Amanda kindly said, not sure if it's just me, but I'm a little confused. Fallon wants a longer lease, but is worried about the longevity of the coffee shop because of a big chain potentially coming in. So why did she want a longer lease then? Also, do people just offer each other a loan? I don't recall Fallon and Linda being such besties. Good point, Amanda. I wonder what she puts in the carrot cake. Then we had Ian going into Adil's office and accepting a job that Adil didn't even know had been offered to him. Kate Lyle thought, This stuff with Adil and Oliver really is deeply, deeply ridiculous, isn't it? Katrina Owen asked a question about Oliver. I thought he was still part owner of Greg Abel's, but maybe I am wrong. If he is a part owner, why does he not have the authority to make a decision? Why does Adil feel he is the boss of Oliver, and why isn't Oliver attending owners' meetings? Glyn Pollerlove was his usual, succinct and accurate self. As a minority owner, Oliver is more of an investor than a manager. I would expect him to have a non-executive advisory role and not be involved in staff appointments. Helen assumed that Ian getting the food-buying chat post meant she'd automatically be getting the Grey Gables cheese contract, which would guarantee her a sale of what? one, two kilos a week. But, as Darcy Jorgensen said, good for you, Ian. She didn't see that coming when Ian made it clear that he had principles and would be following proper procedures. Early in the week, George and Henry started making plans to go to the county fair. Henry had already planned another meeting, Kate Penfold noted. Did anyone else think it a bit, bit odd that Henry referred to Rob as his real stepfather? Sally Owen, Genevieve Van Holmes, Chris Murray, Helen Blackburn, Katrina Owen and Lynn Bogarski all thought it was probably a case of Henry repeating what Rob had been telling him. But Sherry Thackeray and Fiona Casper pointed out that Rob was actually married to Helen and she did give him presidential responsibility. Andrew Stewart also said that Lee is only Helen's boyfriend. I wonder if Helen knows that. Obviously the big thing was the actual meeting. Rob offered Henry a choice of coffee or cold drink, all served with a big slice of indoctrination. I think Jonah Titchmarsh had visions of cape twirling and moustache swirling. Yes, I think Henry is old enough to spot somebody talking like a pantomime villain. That was beyond ludicrous and unintentionally hilarious. Helen Blackburn pointed out that Rob didn't talk like that when he was around last time. I don't know how many lives he saved, but he forgot to tell Henry that he caused the bloody flood. And Raffi J added, he also forgot to mention that he didn't want to help, but was strong-armed into it by Harrison. It looked like George was swooping into the rescue, as Ruth Pearl said, I'd love it if there was a redeeming side to George, but I thought Rob threatening him re his job would be enough to silence him. And just as we thought that the county fair could give us nothing more, Louise Lawton said that she thought that Eddie calling to Emma 
Don't let her whistle had to be the best line of the summer. The euphoria didn't last long before the lunacy returned with another gruesome Grundy game plan. Inspired by the sheepdog trials, who amongst us hasn't been, Eddie came up with a plan to do the same with turkeys. Or, as our own Stephen Bowden said, turkeys herded by ferrets. Grundy's world of Christmas carnage. You know it makes sense. And that's it for this week. I look forward to another week of fun and frolics on the Dumpty Dum Facebook pages and hope to be in touch with all of you there. Be warned though, when the chat starts, you can be there for hours. Bye now. Thank you, the much nicer Rob. That was absolutely brilliant. You've actually captured the essence of the week on the Dumpty Dum Facebook group. Now we're going to go to Twitter, where you'll find us at Dumpty Dum. Make sure you include the archers, hashtag using a capital T and A, so the visually impaired who use screen readers can enjoy any archers-based tweets. As well as at Dumpty Dum, I can be found at Jberto Sanguen, G-U-E-N. And I can be found at Wenlock House. So, let's find out who has won the Twitter medals this week. Hello, it's Fry here. And now, on Dumpty Dum, it's time for Tweet of the Week. Welcome back, Jacqueline. Hello, Stephen, and Dumpty Dummers everywhere. It's Purple Pumpkin here with a selection of Tweets of the Week. And my thanks as ever to Bernadette, Jen, Quentin, and everyone who tags at Dumpty Dum to make sure we see all the best ones. This week on Twitter, alongside all the anxiety about Rob and what he's up to, there was a lot of discussion of Stella's age given the music references in her discussions while camping and around roller skating. Is she mid-30s, mid-40s or older? Can we get any advice from Brenda Selwyn, Stephen or any other eagle-eyed archivists? Please do let us know. There was also a lot of speculation about the reasons for the return of Lottie, plus people wondering if George would be redeemed by the Robin Henry meet-up and why we didn't hear about college results for Chelsea. Some tweeters found it all too stressful and pledged to get their story updates just from the synopsis and tweets until Rob is back in his box one way or another. And so to my medals for Tweets of the Week, which have had to avoid the nasty manipulative storyline as there's so little humour in it. In bronze position, it's Finton T, at Finton the Wrong, a blonde woman with a dog whistle, is it Nadine Dorries? The silver medal goes to Little Kim. At Little Kim. Helen and Ian's friendship ended by cheese. I always thought it would be ended by Helen's personality, but there you go. And the gold medal goes to Nick. At Check Your Sheds. Talking about Bridge Farm. It has Schrodinger's Dairy, at once popular enough for expansion and gimmicks, while also falling into complete ruin after being taken off one hotel cheese board. Well, that's it for this week. Hope to see you all on Twitter next week. Thank you for that, Purple Pumpkin, and congratulations to all who are mentioned in this week's roundup, but especially those medal winners. In bronze, Finton T, 
at Finton the Wrong, in silver, Little Kim, at Little Kim, and in gold, Nick, at Check Your Sheds. And don't forget we're on Instagram, at Dumpty Dum. Next week's episode will be hosted, as Jacqueline mentioned earlier, by Philippa and Katie. And so please get your calls into them by the normal time. And as we come to the end of this episode, we need to say thanks to all our wonderful contributors and to our social media supremos. The whole Dumpty Dum team are amazing. And we must say thank you to Shambridge for Her Voices and our podcasting parents, Lucy V. Freeman and Royfield Brown. Thank you so much for listening and joining us today. We're now off to teach those ferrets to herd they turkeys. So it's a bye-bye from me. And it's an au revoir from me, Stephen. I'll see you in two weeks' time. See you then. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.